week of Doubters Anonymous. And um, as we, you know, we took questions from you guys. We told you to turn questions in at the connection point if you had questions to ask. And a lot of really good questions came in. And so many good questions came in that we thought we better take the last week and answer some of these questions. Um, so we're going to do that this week. We are going to answer six questions in the next few minutes uh, before, you know, before 12, uh, 1 um, But I want to say before we start that, uh, first of all, I don't know who asked any of these questions. These are all totally anonymous. They all came into the box. Um, if you asked one of these questions and I don't answer it the way you wanted me to answer it, not that the not that the answer is not what you wanted, but that there was something different that motivated your question. You can come and talk to me afterwards. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed this series because this series has challenged us um, to take a hard look at our doubt and has challenged us to take a hard look at a lot of questions that we have. Um, so as we start this morning, I want to share with you a quote from Augustine. It's a, it's a pretty well-known quote, and we've said this before on Sunday mornings. But Augustine uh, once said, when it comes to matters of theology, matters of doctrine, in essentials, we want to have unity. In non-essentials, we want to have liberty. And in all things, we want to have love. So when, when we look at doctrinal issues of the church, when we look at theological issues in the church, we have essentials and we have non-essentials, okay? Love is non-negotiable. We always want to handle these issues with love. Some disagreements, theological and doctrinal disagreements, have led to, like, wars, okay? So we always want to approach these things with love. But uh, there are some things that are essentials, that are non-negotiables when it comes to doctrine, for example, Jesus says in the word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? It is an essential, it is a non-negotiable that Jesus is the only way to God. You cannot be a Christian and also believe that everyone's path to God is significant and valid. Okay? Christianity holds itself into the essential doctrine of Jesus being the only way to God. Um, so that's an example of an essential an example of a non-essential would be something like infant baptism. Uh, we don't baptize babies here at the bridge. Some Christian traditions believe in infant baptism. It doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a practice um, that you can do or not do. Uh, there's nothing wrong with infant baptism. If you were baptized as an infant or if you had your babies baptized, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the fact that we don't do that. That's an example of a non-essential. Um, it's not core to the gospel people can do what they choose to do, and that's okay. Um, so I want, I want to start with that. There will be a few of these questions this morning that address essential doctrines. They're non-negotiables. And there's some of these that are what we call non-essentials. Um, you can disagree, you can agree, you can choose to do differently, and it doesn't have eternal consequences as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but there, the truth is that there are a lot of questions that we just don't have answers for. As we look at the Bible, there are modern issues that we have that there are not always clear, explicit answers in scripture. And so in those moments, it's important for us to look at the larger story of the Bible and deduce what we can from what we know of the character of God. You with me? We're going we're gonna to do some deep diving uh, this morning. So... Stay with me. Um, so the first question that I want to address that came in is regarding the Trinity. So someone wrote in, can you explain the Trinity? And then they wrote on their paper, Jesus is God, 
but he was abandoned by God when he died for us. Is there one God or three gods? Who is God? Jesus? God? Spirit? What do we do with all of this? This is a confusing this is a bit of a confusing element. Um, and I want to let you know that there are some elements of who God is that are kind of beyond our human capacity to understand, okay? Here in our human world, we work in either or. It's either one or it's three. But the way the kingdom works is both and. It's both one and it's three. The Godhead exists as one being who is God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, there are certain things, there are certain elements about God that our brains cannot understand because we are humans. Um, another example of this is the concept of eternity. We know that people who believe in Jesus, who follow Jesus, will spend eternity with God, but our minds cannot comprehend eternity. This is a good thing. Okay, if we could understand everything about God, we would serve a small, finite God. But God is the creator, and we are the created beings. And there are elements of God that we just cannot wrap our minds around. And the Trinity ends up being one of those. It's one being that exists in three persons. I found a handy little diagram um, that can kind of show us the relationship between the three. There it is. Uh, so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the same as the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But they are all God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Um, it, it's easier maybe to think in, in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three together comprise God. We sang this this morning. The Godhead three in one. Father, Spirit, Son. Okay, and if this is your first time to church in your life, you probably were like, what is this song talking about? I have no idea. I'm just going to sing the words anyway. But, uh, but the, the, the relationship between the Trinity is one of mutual submission and service. So part of the question that was asked was that Jesus is God, so how is it that he was abandoned by God when he died? The death of Christ was the first time in all of eternity that the Trinity was separated, that they were separated from each other. From eternal beginnings, they existed together as one, and at the death of Christ, the universe was kind of thrown into crisis because the Trinity was ripped apart by death. And then, of course, we know that the power of God raised Christ from the dead, and in that moment, we're good, right? But, the, but we see the relationship between Jesus and the Father of the Son a couple times in Scripture. At the baptism of Jesus, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, when he came out of the water, we saw the Son being physically baptized in water. The Father said, we heard the voice of the Father that said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove onto Jesus. So in this moment, the three persons of the Trinity were all there and present in the same moment. When we pray, we interact with all three persons of the Trinity when we pray. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts with, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. So when I pray, I follow the model of Jesus, and I pray to the Father. You'll notice if you pay attention when I lead the congregation in prayer, most of the time, I don't want to say 100% because maybe sometimes I miss it, but most of the time I say, Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Da, 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 da. I address my prayer to the Father because that's what Jesus modeled for us. Uh, and in Romans 8.26, it tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays through us. 
So I address my prayer to the Father, and I tune into the Holy Spirit to see what the Holy Spirit would have me pray. So if one of you comes to me after service and you say, oh, Pastor Kelly, I'm having such a hard time. Here's what's happening. Will you pray for me? As you're talking to me, I have one ear. I have my people ear listening to you. And I have my spirit ear listening to the Holy Spirit to see how the Holy Spirit is going to lead me to pray. Because I want to pray how the Holy Spirit leads me to pray. So when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays through us. And then when I end my prayer, I say, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus. It says do everything you do in the name of Jesus. So when I finish my prayer, I want to submit that all to the Father in the name of Jesus. I want to remind the Father that I am reconciled to him through the person of Jesus Christ. So when I pray, I interact with all three persons of the Trinity. I don't know how it works, okay? You can read scholarly theological journals from everywhere and get different answers. Um, But that's how I interact with the Trinity. But they are mutually submissive to one another. So in Philippians chapter 2, Paul Paul says to us in Philippians 2 verse 6, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, Do the same thing that Christ Jesus did. Who, Jesus, who being in very nature God, who being the same as God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. See, in our human understanding, we want to know who's in charge, right? We're like, yeah, father, son, and the spirit, but who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? You know, who's the one that can like get the other two in trouble? We want to know what the hierarchy is because we think in terms of power and position, but the way that the Trinity works is in mutual and willing submission to one another. So we can't think of it in human terms. But it's very important to understand that idea of mutual submission within the Trinity when we come to our next question. Uh, Because the the next question we are going to be, I I know that I didn't really answer that Trinity question, okay? I know, I don't want to hear about it. Um, If you have more questions about the Trinity, you're going to have to ask Sheila or Suzanne. Um, But I do want to say that some people give a very simple explanation of the Trinity. And if someone gives you a very simple, easy explanation of the Trinity, they're probably wrong, okay? Because this is a, this is a vast concept. Um, but that's all, I can, that's all I can answer about the Trinity for today. So hopefully, whoever asked that question, that helps you a little bit. Uh, but the next question we're going to address has to do with gender roles. So the, bio, the, the question that came in said, what does the Bible say about gender roles? And then they wrote in, for example, The husband, it says in the Bible that the husband needs to provide for the whole family, but that's harder and harder these days. The Bible way is getting less compatible with our current reality. Uh, And I just want to say that I think the biblical model is that the husband should provide for his family and the wife should stay home with the kids. That's obviously a lie. I don't believe that. Um, This is one of those non-essential 
issues, okay? But we need to go to the Bible and and see what the Bible has to say about this. Um, And a lot of pastors teach different things about gender roles. Um, A lot of pastors teach different things about what the home is supposed to look like, what the godly home is supposed to look like. But when it comes to providing income, I want to throw out a few examples from scripture to you. Uh, The first is Proverbs 31, which is the quintessential chapter of the godly woman, right? And any women who grew up in church are like, oh, don't quote Proverbs 31 to us. We hate this chapter Um, because it has to do with all of the things a godly woman is supposed to be. But in the Proverbs 31 uh, statement on the wife that is being praised by her husband, she is a hard worker. It says she wakes up early and she works with her hands. She goes to the marketplace. She's a businesswoman. She helps to provide income for her family. She's a hard worker. She's not just sitting around reading her devotional book and, you know, doing nothing with her life. She's working hard. She's a good businesswoman. She's helping to provide for her family. Uh, In the New Testament, one of Paul's friends was named Lydia, and Lydia was another businesswoman. She was a very successful businesswoman who dealt in textiles, and she helped to fund Paul's work. So as Paul was traveling around, starting churches and sharing the message of Jesus, Lydia was one of the people whose income was making that happen. She was a good businesswoman. She also hosted meetings in her home, which she bought with the profits of her business. Paul had another friend named Priscilla, whose husband was named Aquila. They worked together in business, and they worked together in ministry. They would often travel with Paul um, doing tent making. Uh, So they worked together in business, and they also worked together in ministry. They hosted a church in their home. And when Paul talks about Priscilla, he says she is a good apostle. She is really good at what she does. And there are numerous women that are mentioned in the New Testament uh, as being well-respected by the apostles and by the other uh, disciples. And so the fact of the matter is that different cultures dictate different household norms. Even in this room, many of us come from vastly different cultures that dictate different things about what we believe the home should look like, what we believe the husband's role is and what the wife's role is. Um, Even in my home culture... I'm from the middle of America, okay? And, uh, and I'm looked at as sort of an anomaly because all of, many of my friends and, and many of my sister's friends, their dream was to be a stay-at-home wife and mom. That was their dream. And I realized early on that that wasn't really my dream, but it's seen as a bit controversial. Uh, a couple years ago, I was, I was dating a guy, a good Christian guy, and he, he let me know that a non-negotiable for him was that he would have six children. And I said, how do you plan on obtaining these six children, <laughs> sir? But, uh, but I was like, well, that's a very interesting thing to have as a non-negotiable in a relationship, but whatever floats your boat, you know. And then he let me know that his um, belief was that his wife should stay home and homeschool his six children the relationship didn't work out. Um, I actually think I said to him, oh, are you going to stay home and homeschool your children? That's so wonderful. And he said, well, no, I, I have a traditional view of, of marriage in the household. And so I said, you, 
Good luck with that. And he's he's married now to a wonderful woman who I assume wants to stay home and homeschool their six children, which is great for them. There's nothing wrong with that model. There's nothing wrong with the model of the husband going off to work, providing an income for his family, and the wife of the family staying home and raising the children and keeping the home. That is a beautiful and wonderful, valid way to live your life. But the Bible doesn't dictate that that's the only way to live your life, okay? So we have to, in a, in a marriage relationship, we have to practice what the Trinity models for us in mutual submission and service. Because if we're vying for power, we're going to get off track with what God wants for our lives. So it's important that your home culture is honored in that and that the, the, the feelings and the callings of both partners are honored in that. And in our congregation, we have many different models. We have families where the husband goes off to work and the wife stays home and, and keeps the house. We have families where the wife goes off to work and the husband stays home and keeps the house. And then we have some single parent families where there's one parent responsible for raising the children and for gaining an income, okay? Whatever works for your household is okay as long as both partners feel like they're being heard and respected in those decisions. That's an example of a non-essential. But Joel chapter 2, in in Joel chapter 2, Joel uh, prophesies that your sons and daughters will prophesy. And God says, I will pour out my spirit on both men and on women, And Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So my answer to that question is, do what works for your family. Okay? That's my answer to that question. If you have a problem with it, you can talk to me after service, and I will defend my strong beliefs on that. Okay, we're going to go deep for a couple minutes here. So, because the next question that came in is, does God forgive suicide? Does God forgive suicide? This is a little darker than we normally like to go on Sunday mornings, but I felt that it was very important that I addressed this uh, because this was a question that came in. And as I, as I sat with this question, my initial thought was that there's two reasons that somebody would ask this question. The first reason that might motivate someone to ask this question is that maybe someone that they know or love has died by suicide. Um, The other potential motivator is that there is a person who is contemplating suicide and they wanted to know if they would be forgiven. So this is a tricky question because if I say, yes, God forgives suicide, it's no problem. Party number two goes, oh, I'm off the hook. I can move forward with this. If I say, no, God doesn't forgive suicide, and you go to hell if you commit suicide, then I might scare person number two into not living their life, or into, into not ending their life. But, uh, but camp number one then is very concerned, of course, about the eternal fate of their loved ones, and party number two just sticks around because they're scared of going to hell, right? So thanks a lot, whoever asked this question. You put me in a tough spot. But I want to address this because this is a prevalent issue, and probably there are people in the room, probably a lot of people in the room, who have been through very, very dark times in your lives and maybe have had thoughts like this. So it's important that we address this. Um, and I do want to say that we, we can't know for sure. We can't know for sure 
how God makes these decisions on when to show mercy and when to show judgment. I can't, I can't speak for God. Okay, this is one of those questions that is difficult to answer because scripture doesn't say explicitly. But this is one of those moments where we have to look at what we know about the character of God in the Bible and apply it to this. So here's what I want to say. It's a fundamental core belief of mine that the mercy of God is bigger than we could ever imagine. The mercy of God is bigger than we could ever imagine. And, and it says in the word that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Psalm 103 says this about God. It says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I cannot, I cannot compromise on the message of the mercy of God. Okay, And there are times when we talk about grace and we talk about mercy that we become afraid that if we talk too much about mercy and grace, people are going to feel the freedom to do whatever they want to do. Okay, But I, I believe fundamentally that we cannot compromise when it comes to the mercy of God. You know, there's, there's this verse where, where it says that when some people come into the kingdom, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the truth of the matter is that grace and mercy are so fundamental to the heart of God that a lot of times people who are in very broken places understand the mercy and the compassion of Jesus better than I do. So we have to understand that these people who are dependent on the mercy of God often are the biggest recipients of the mercy of God. Um, so I want to say that, and I also want to say that if you're here and you asked this question because you are contemplating suicide, I want to speak to that for just a moment. Um, I, I want to say unequivocally that God does not want you to end your life, okay? Jesus came so that you could have life and have life to the full. Have life to the full. Jesus wants you to have a full, abundant life, and he loves you so much that he has put you in a church full of people who love you. He has put you in a church full of people who have walked through difficult times, people who have walked through broken times, and people who are ready to surround you uh, with love and with compassion. God gives us resources to get through difficult times. Some pastors will sit at the front of the room and say, if you're dealing with depression, just pray harder, just press in, and God will set you free. Your pastor is saying, God has inspired people to invent medications, and God has inspired some people to become medical professionals so that they can help us when we are in times of darkness or when we're dealing with mental illness, okay? I am not a doctor. I am not a psychologist. If you come to me and you say, I'm so depressed that I want to kill myself, I will tell you, you should go see a professional who can help you, okay? Just the same way that God has inspired doctors to create medications for our bodies, sometimes we need more help uh, with our mental health. And I want to, I want to say very much that, um, that if you come to one of us for help, if you come to me, if you come to Suzanne, if you come to one of your brothers and sisters here, no one is going to shame you for being a Christian who's dealing with depression, okay? We want you to come to us. In fact, we see this in the Bible a couple of times. In Psalm 22, David shows us his wrestle in a very dark season of his life. He writes this, and we even see Jesus reference this. 
on the cross, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. This is not a guy that's having a very good day. Okay, he's in a dark He's in a dark place when he writes this. And then in the, in the story of Job that we read in the Bible, Job went through some really, really difficult times. And Job says several times, he says, God, I wish I had never been born. If you really loved me, you would have never let me be born so that I wouldn't have to deal with all of this darkness. We see this from people who knew the heart of God, people who loved God deeply, went through dark times. But what I want to tell you is, it got better for them. God didn't leave them in that place. And sometimes when you're in a dark place, it feels like you're going to be there forever. But there's some of us in this room who have walked through dark seasons of our lives, and now we're not in those seasons anymore because God is faithful. Okay, And I want to tell you today that if you're in that place like where David is, I mean, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. I have nothing left. It does get better. It does get better. And we're here to support you in those times. We don't want you to think that you are alone. Um, this question is kind of a, it's, it's a little bit of a technical theological question because it plays a little bit into what happens if I die while I'm sinning. Right? So when I was a kid, the church talked a lot about the second coming of Jesus when I was a kid, when I was growing up. And uh, it was very like, Jesus is going to come back, and you won't even see it coming, and then, you know, all of a sudden, we'll be with the Lord. And what I heard was, you know, if he what if he comes, like, right after I lied to my mom, or what if he comes right after I disobeyed? So we'd be in church, and all the old people are like, yes, Jesus could come back any minute. And I'm like, oh, I stole a mint from my mom's purse. Oh, no. What if Jesus comes back? And I was, like, racked with guilt as an eight-year-old, you know? And some of you who grew up in church, this might have happened to you, I would, like, if I came home from school and nobody was home, you know, you come in the house and no one's there, and I was like, oh, Jesus came back and I got left behind. Oh, my word, you know. I lost that library book. I didn't take it back to the library. Jesus, I'm so sorry. Give me another chance. I would have nightmares. You know, this childhood trauma, it was really a thing. But I, even I, as a kid, had this thing of, like, what happens if I die while I'm sinning? You know, you lie to your mom right before you go to bed, and then you're laying there in bed like, God, what if I die in my sleep tonight? I think I'm going to go to hell, you know? Um, we can be really hard on ourselves in those seasons. So I want to lead this into our next question that came in, which is, why do we still sin as Christians? Um, it doesn't mean I'm not really a Christian if I still struggle with sin. And I, I, I want to say, first of all, that if you're a Christian and you're still struggling with sin, I'd like to welcome you to the club. Um, all of us all of us struggle, and we all wrestle, and even the Apostle Paul wrestled with this. So in Romans chapter 7, this is such a great passage from Paul. He just says it so well. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Has anybody been there before? You know? No one's raising their hands. They're like... <laughs> and he goes on in verse 21. He says, So I find this law at work. 
Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Inside of me, I love God's law and I want to be obedient. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. I don't know about you guys, but I've walked through times in my life where I'm like, oh man, I just, I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it, even though it's right in front of me. And then the thing, the sin issue in my life, I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway. And I have felt this wrestle between my flesh and my spirit. And the truth of the matter is that as long as we're here on this earth, we are spirit encased in flesh. And there will always be a battle between our spirit and our flesh. And what I have found is that there, there have been issues in my life that God has moved me past. And I want to say for sure, God gives us the power to overcome sin. For sure he does. For some people, when they make a commitment to follow Jesus, immediately they find freedom from their sin issues. I have talked to people who are addicted to drugs or who are addicted to alcohol or whatever else, and as soon as they got saved, they didn't want, you know, they didn't want whatever it was anymore. It was over. But I think those stories, those stories get told a lot, but I don't think that's the most normative experience. Many of us wrestle to overcome our sin, but absolutely God has given us the power to overcome our sin and we don't have to live as slaves to our sin. But our moving past our sin, it's not in order to earn salvation. Um, It's a response to the grace of Jesus. So in uh, the New Testament, there's a story where Jesus is there and some religious leaders bring to Jesus a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. And they they try to, you know, they, they put Jesus in a difficult position because they say, Jesus, the law says that we are to stone this woman. So should we go ahead and do it? And, and it's, a, it's a famous story because Jesus uh, basically looks at them and says, if any of you are without sin, you can be the one to throw the first stone. And of course, they all drop their stones and, and walk away. And then Jesus says to the woman, where are all of your accusers? And she looks around and says, Jesus, there's no one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't, he didn't first say go and sin no more. First he said, I'm not condemning you. Now go and respond to that freedom. Respond to the fact that I've set you free by living into the freedom that I have given you. Okay? See, we can, we, church gets kind of a bad rap because it's like, oh, I'm going to go. The pastor's going to tell me to stop sinning. Living in sin is not fun. Okay? It's not fun to be in a place where you're wrestling with the same sin over and over. It feels terrible. And I believe that God wants to set you free from that. But following God is a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong journey. And I have found in my own life that when I overcome one sin, it's, I'm not a sinless person at that point. At that point, God goes, great, now you're ready for the next step. Now we're ready to move past the next thing. Now we're ready to go even deeper and to overcome things that you didn't even know were there in your heart. Because the further you're, the longer you're with God, the stronger you get. I've been, uh, I've been going to the gym a lot lately. I know you can't tell, but I don't want to hear about that. But uh, I've, I've gotten really into lifting weights, okay? 
And uh, there, there are there are a couple of moves that were very intimidating to me because I didn't know how to do them right. And you know, you're in the gym and everyone's watching you. So there was one called a Bulgarian split squat, which sounds a lot more technical than it is, but it's basically this thing where you put one foot up on the bench and the other foot's on the floor. And then you go up and down and you try not to fall over and you're supposed to hold heavy weights while you do it. But this was on my workout program and I always skipped it because I, I was, I didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want to try it, you know? So I tried it at home. It didn't go very well. And, uh, and finally, I was like, I'm determined that I'm going to take steps toward figuring this out. And so I started doing different things to strengthen the muscles I needed in order to do this. And of course, the first time I did it, I kept falling over and it was really terrible. But the fact that I started to take steps toward this meant that I got stronger in the ways I needed to be stronger in order to accomplish the goal that I had made. Okay. So when you have a sin issue in your life, if you sit in that sin issue and constantly go, well, I don't know how to overcome it. So I'm just going to leave it for another time. You don't ever develop the muscles that you need to move forward and overcome sin in that area. You have to start taking steps in the right direction to get stronger in order to overcome that sin. Does that make sense? I know that's a stretch of an illustration, but it makes sense in my head. Um, so I want to give you a few first steps that you might need to take to overcome uh, sin in your life. The first thing is the practice of repentance. Repentance means that I take time to acknowledge my disobedience, I ask for forgiveness, and I commit to change. Okay? When I'm wrestling with a sin issue in my life, I avoid repentance for as long as I can. Because I like to think that I can get past it on my own. I like to think I can overcome sin on my own, but the truth is that I can't. I have to have God's help. So I usually come to a point where I'm so tired of wrestling with sin that I say, man, God, I have been living in disobedience. Here are the ways that I have disobeyed you. Please forgive me. We're going we're gonna to make this happen. We're going to commit to change, and I'm going to do what I have to do uh, to change in this area. So the first thing we have to do is we have to enter into a moment of repentance. Um, and when you enter into that moment, God receives you with open arms. When you enter into a place of repentance, God is not angry at you. He's proud of you. He's proud of you for taking steps, and he receives you with open arms. The next thing I need to do is create some accountability. So I need to tell, first thing I have to do is tell God about my sin. He already knows. But he needs, you know, I need to say it to him. The second thing I need to do is tell another person and get some accountability in my life. I need to tell one of my pastors or I need to tell a brother or sister in Christ who I trust and I um, respect their spiritual journey. John chapter 3 verse 21 says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. There's a really powerful moment when you confess your sin to a brother or sister because you, the enemy lies to us. The enemy says things like, you're the only person who does this. You're disgusting. And if everybody knew who you really are, they wouldn't respect you and they wouldn't love you. So you finally work up the guts to go and talk to someone about it. And you're like, oh, I need to tell you something. Oh, I'm just so ashamed. And finally you say it and the other person looks at you and they're like, uh... Is that it? That's, that's, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, we'll work through it, but that's not so bad. And when you suddenly shine light into those dark places in your heart, it helps you have the power to overcome sin. And when you have a brother or sister in Christ who knows what's going on and they can ask you about it, they can celebrate that victory with you when God helps you overcome that sin. 
Um, Paul talks about the fact that we need to flee from sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from immorality. He tells Timothy, flee from the desires of the flesh. Flee from it, which means take whatever steps you need to take to create change. Jesus says at one point, Jesus is like, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't do that, okay? That was, he was like exaggerating. He was trying to say, do whatever it takes to get freedom from sin in your life. Do whatever it takes. If we really did what Jesus said to do, we would all be blind with no limbs. You know what I mean? But, uh, but Jesus is saying, you do whatever it takes. Don't worry about what other people think of you. You do whatever it takes. If the guy you're having lunch with at your canteen uh, every day at work is causing you to be dissatisfied with your marriage and is making you think of being unfaithful, stop having lunch with that guy at the canteen. It's not his fault. He's not doing anything wrong necessarily. But you have to take steps back and stop thinking you can handle things that you can't handle. If you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at on your iPhone or your laptop, get a flip phone and get rid of your laptop. At some point, we have to become desperate enough to overcome our sin that we're willing to do whatever it takes. If you make poor decisions when you drink too much alcohol, stop drinking alcohol. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Paul says, flee from sin. Stop trying to prove how strong you are. Acknowledge your weakness and flee from it. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. In other words, what you feed will grow, and what you starve will die. What you feed will grow, and what you starve will die. Look, if you're not in the habit of praying and reading the word, it's not very much fun at first. You know, you imagine, oh, Pastor Kelly's been telling me to read the Bible, so I'm going to sit down. It's going to be profound. It's going to be super exciting. And it's a little bit boring at first, okay? But when you feed that, it begins to grow, and your desire for God begins to grow as you feed that. And as you grow closer to God, you begin to starve the sin nature, and you become, uh, it becomes easier to overcome sin in your life. If you keep feeding the sin nature, that will continue to grow, and your spirit man will become starved. This is a great principle. What you feed will grow, what you starve will die. The more I pursue the heart of God, the easier it becomes to overcome sin. Um, The next question that came in plays into this a little bit, because the next question is, how does one learn to love being alone? Um, You don't have to be alone. You're in a church, and you have lots of friends. That's what I have to say about that. Join a small group. Join a serve team. Uh, We're not made to be alone. If this is a question about how do I learn to be content in my singleness, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. But Psalm 68, 6 says that God sets the lonely into families. So long story short, you're not alone. And you shouldn't love being alone because we were created for community. Moving on. Uh, Last question. And I'm going to touch on this for just a moment. Olivia, you can come. Um, The last question that came in said, uh, it said, Paul talks about the elect. Why does God choose some people and not others? Doesn't that make us free from responsibility? Isn't our salvation or damnation God's choice? This reference is a doctrine called predestination, uh, which is a doctrine that teaches that God chooses who will go to heaven and who will not go to heaven. And we, we don't really do anything about it. God just chooses for us. 
Um, I won't use the word heresy, but uh, I'm tempted to, because I believe that I believe that the concept of predestination is contrary to the character of God, because this basically teaches that we don't have a choice. God makes the choice for us. Uh, but in Joshua 24, Joshua says to the Israelites, he says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul says to Timothy, uh, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then in Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God didn't choose for you. God gave you free will so that you could choose whether or not to engage in relationship with Jesus. It's your choice. God's desire is that everyone would be saved. And he tells us how to do it. He t- Paul tells us how to do it right here. You declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It negates the sacrifice of Christ if we say that God, God chooses. God doesn't choose. We choose in response to God's grace, and God grants us eternal life. Every one of us has the opportunity to spend eternity with God by engaging in relationship with Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare? to close. The fact of the matter is that our relationship with God is a choice. He gives us free will. You can't gain eternal life based on where you were born or what religion your parents were. It's your decision. Joshua says, if you want to choose, if you want to choose another way, that's your choice. If the way of the Lord is undesirable for you, worship another God. It's up to you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This morning, I want to let you know that as we're ending this Doubters Anonymous series, we've talked about some really tough questions. We've talked a lot about doubt. And I want to let you know that if you're waiting to become a Christian until you don't have any more questions, you'll never be a Christian. I've been a Christian almost my whole life, and I still have a lot of questions. The more I get to know God, the more questions I have. Faith is about moving forward into a relationship in the middle of our questions and trusting the faithfulness and the patience of God in establishing a relationship with us. Hey, this is Kelly, lead pastor of the Bridge International Church. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from the Bridge. If you'd like more information about the Bridge, or if you'd like to get in touch with us, visit us at thebridgeparis.com.